No announcements today, um, but as you can see, we're going to be talking about Jehovah's Witnesses today. And this is our third to last time we'll be meeting, our second to last religion that we'll be covering. The last two weeks, we'll cover Roman Catholicism with a little bit of Eastern Orthodoxy uh, mixed in to make it cover two weeks. But today will be Jehovah's Witnesses. So kind of like with the Mormon question, I'll start. Do we have any, well, I'll take a gamble. Do we have any ex-Jehovah's Witnesses in here? If so, I'd let you teach the whole, you know? Is anybody related to or have any family or friends that are Jehovah's Witnesses currently? Got some nods here. I know I told you about my, my dad's sister's husband's brother's wife that was a Mormon, which sounded made up, um, but it was true. But, uh, and some of you may know that my dad's other sister converted to Judaism to marry a Jewish guy a handful of years ago. I have a third one now. Um, my mom's twin sister, so my aunt, converted to Jehovah's Witness um, theology when she got in her second marriage. So I've got a Mormon, a Jew, and a Jehovah's Witness, which sounds like the beginning of a great joke, but <laughs> but really just means that I've got my work cut out for me uh, to share the good news um, with them. Um, there are I'll, We'll get to the map later, but there are more Jehovah's Witnesses around here than maybe we realize. They're not as obvious to, to spot as the Mormons. They don't have the same look, and they tend to be more separate from the world, but they are around, so the, the ground is fertile. But we'll go ahead and get started, and we'll start with Jehovah's Witnesses, trying to boil it down to a basic idea, like we have for all of these. And the basic idea that I think could summarize the the core concept of the Jehovah's Witness faith would be that there is one almighty God named Jehovah, hence hence their name, and Jesus Christ is his chief creation. This really summarizes two big tenets of their faith, that there is one God specifically named Jehovah, and then that his one and only Son is His primary creation, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not God. There's no concept of the Trinity. And in fact, they tend to hold the Trinity kind of um, not in very high esteem. They think it's a kind of a ridiculous perspective that traditional Christianity has, um, this understanding of the Trinity. And I'll actually show, I blurred out my aunt's name, but this is my aunt. This is something she posted on Facebook, and you'll see things like this. If you can't read it, it says, Why did God have to send himself down to earth to become his own son, to sacrifice himself to himself, just to convince himself to forgive us? So poking fun at the idea of the Trinity, really what it represents is a pretty gross misunderstanding of what we are actually um, stating when we state what we believe in the Trinity. But that kind of perspective of what other Christian, well, they wouldn't even call us other Christians, what traditional Christianity teaches is kind of held in derision by the Jehovah's Witness faith. Okay, we'll give you a brief history here. This uh, originated around the same time as Mormonism. There will be a lot of crossover with Mormonism, but the Jehovah's Witnesses religion was founded by this guy here, Charles Taze Russell, who was a businessman in Pennsylvania, and it started in 1869, so 30, 40 years after Mormonism kicked off. Uh, As a younger man, Russell was frustrated with his personal experience within traditional Christian churches. Um, In particular, he did not like what they taught about the idea of hell, and then he also did not like the concept of the Trinity, as you could see in that Facebook post, as he thought it to be unreasonable, didn't think it was a reasonable doctrine. He started to become interested in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I don't know if you're familiar with that movement, but you will see some of the beliefs of Seventh-day Adventism kind of cross over into Jehovah's Witness theology. 
uh, at age 18, so as a pretty young man, he formed his own Bible study and started developing his own system of theology. And he was a very gifted communicator and a writer. His ideas started to pick up steam fairly quickly, even as a young man. And in 1879, he started publishing a magazine that he called The Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence, which is a mouthful of a name. But now today, that still exists and is known as The Watchtower. And things published in that magazine are considered authoritative church teaching. With the publication of that magazine, his new religion, if you wanted to call it that, um, formed 30 congregations uh, within, within just a year. That being the case, he then founded a formal uh, religious corporation in 1884 called the Watchtower Tract and Bible Society. Or, well, sorry, he called it Zion's Watchtower Tract Society. And it was in 1896 where he renamed it the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which is what the official corporation is still known as today, with its headquarters being in Brooklyn, New York. Um, one of the key things that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses did very early on especially was make predictions that didn't come to be. And one of the important predictions that Russell made was that in 1914, this would be the beginning of Christ's millennial reign and the return of Jesus Christ to earth. And when that didn't happen, uh, and instead a whole bunch of other terrible events happened, like the beginning of World War I, he had to adjust his prediction, which is a very common theme you'll see um, with that faith. And he died in 1916, having not seen any of his predictions come to be which is some sweet irony, because that was one of the things that turned him off of Seventh-day Adventism, that they predicted that Christ would return in 1874. And when that didn't happen, it pushed him away from that faith. So he became what he despised. After Russell, the church has made many more predictions and prophecies that have failed to, to come to pass. I could share a link with you if you're interested to see what all of those different predictions were, but they would be definitionally uh, false prophets because of that. Um, most of their prophecies are all related to the same kind of stuff, the millennial reign, Armageddon. They really uh, emphasize those kinds of things. After Russell, Joseph Rutherford was the next president, and he uh, began some really important expansion. Uh, he was also a gifted communicator, but he wrote even more extensively. He wrote about a book a year, and he started another magazine that was called The Golden Age, Today, that still that one also continues to be published, but it's known as Awake. So Awake and Watchtower, these two magazines, again, are authoritative teaching for the church. It's also Rutherford that initiated the door-to-door -door visitation program, which is like the, the key thing that we know about Jehovah's Witnesses, their door-to-door -door evangelism. It was also under Rutherford that they started referring to themselves as Jehovah's Witnesses. So in terms of their congregations and individuals, they're Jehovah's Witnesses, which was really meant to distinguish them from other kinds of Christians. He died in 42, and then Nathan Knorr was the next president. Uh, and it was under him, uh, skipped one, it was under uh, Nathan Knorr that they published their official sacred text. You may be aware that the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation of the, of the scriptures known as the, the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. And I actually have uh, two copies of these. I accidentally won two auctions on eBay. So if anybody <laughs> wants one, we can have our own little bidding war here. But this is their official translation of the scriptures. We'll talk about this a bit more when we get to the knowledge portion because what's in here... Um, I wouldn't say it drives their theology. I would say their theology drove what's in here, but we'll talk about that uh, when we get there. 
Um, under Noor's leadership is also when they established a missionary school and started to focus on worldwide expansion. And the, the, the church really grew under Noor's leadership. Uh, about the time he took over the presidency in 42, there was 115,000 members. And within 30 years, there were about 2 million, mostly growing under uh, his leadership. And then Frederick Franz was the president uh, after Noor. But eventually, uh, along that time, is when they dissolved the, a presidency of the organization and replaced it with a governing body that is made up of 18 men. And that's still how it is run today, and those men are headquartered in Brooklyn. As I mentioned, their role is to really set the doctrine, determine the weekly teaching of the church. And really, when it comes down to it, it's those, those men that are the ultimate authority of the church and the religion a few logistical things. Uh, they actually don't have churches. They refer to their meeting places as kingdom halls, and their church members fall into two categories. They are either publishers, which would be part-time missionaries, or there would be pioneers, which are full-time missionaries, and everybody is one or the other, and so like we would be considered part-time missionaries. Their members meet uh, five times a week and they keep full records, full detailed records of their missionary activities. It's of primary importance for Jehovah's Witnesses that they gain members and really grow that body of believers. Jehovah's Witnesses are very diligently trained to be able to approach people, to hand out literature or to sell literature, to teach people with dozens and dozens of proof texts for their religion, and then follow up with those people regularly. They really work extremely hard and devote countless hours to evangelism. And I will say this for them, that I believe that they believe that everything they're doing truly is in Scripture and is commanded by Scripture. And, and they know their Scriptures well, at least their proof texts, they know those very, very well. So they are it's no easy thing to go talk to them because they know what they're talking about for the particular categories that are important to them. Now, well, their scriptures are poorly translated. Uh, things are often taken out of context, but they are diligent and believe the Bible firmly to be the fully divine inspired word of God. They take that seriously, of course, specifically just this translation of the text. Another interesting note about how they're organized, their global church organization is organized into individual congregations with each body being run by uh, elders as well as some deacons, which isn't that strange, but they have no real clergy of any kind. So there's no priests, or there's no even pastors, though. They just have elders who are all unsalaried. Uh, their churches or their kingdom halls don't practice tithing in any way. There's never a collection plate or anything that goes around all of their activities, which are vast, vast activities, are supported by anonymous donations, most likely coming from the members, but it's all anonymous and not tracked in any way. Looking at the, the scope of Jehovah's Witnesses, according to their church officials, as of 2021, they had an average monthly membership of about 8.5 million, and those would be people actively involved in preaching. Uh, to be counted as an active member, they must be at least a publisher, one of those categories we talked about, and be reporting some time of preaching and evangelizing to non-members, normally at least an hour per month. So that would mean for those of us in here that are Newcastle members, if we weren't able to document at least an hour's worth of evangelism each month, we would first go on a little bit of probation and then eventually have our membership revoked if we weren't evangelizing to that extent. 
The eight and a half million members are in 239 different lands or countries. They refer to it as lands. And it is one of the fastest growing religions in the world, which surprised me, similar to with Mormonism, uh, where the majority is now outside of the West. Only 40% of Jehovah's Witness membership is in uh, the West, with the most dramatic growth being in Latin America. Um, my wife mentioned that the Kings gave this in an update last week, that there are lots of Jehovah's Witnesses in Latin America, in Ecuador, which I did not expect to, to hear that. I've paid a lot more attention to their theology over the years than to where they are expanding. But they're, they're getting a lot more coverage. In addition to the kings dealing with them in Ecuador, though, we do have a decent population of them, of at least kingdom halls, in our area. So we're the green arrow. Those other uh, markers are kingdom halls around us. So my aunt and uncle would be in that Bloomington section. Uh, As I noted, you're probably less likely to be sure that you know any Jehovah's Witnesses or not, unless they're actively evangelizing you. But they don't have not to be stereotypical, but Mormons kind of have a look to them where you can recognize them. It's not so much with Jehovah's Witnesses. They tend to um, not be overly outgoing. They tend to be more separatist from, from people. If you have kids in school, you may ask them, are there any kids in your class that don't say the Pledge of Allegiance? That might identify a Jehovah's Witness because they abstain from uh, things like that. But they're around. Okay. Let's go ahead and run the Jehovah's Witness faith through our T-A-K-E-S model. And for a lot of these things, I'm going to be pulling directly from their official website, jw.org. That's one thing that's pretty handy about this faith, that there's not really a lot of different branches of it. It's a pretty all-inclusive religion. You can find just about anything you want to know about their faith just from jw.org or from materials that they're more than willing to mail to you. Um, So it is handy. So a handful of things that I'll pull out are coming straight from an FAQ page on JW.org called What Do Jehovah's Witnesses Believe? So that made this week's preparation uh, a little easier. But starting with theology, they obviously have a uh, theology which in some ways is going to sound like Orthodox Christianity, but you'll see pretty quickly where it deviates from what the Bible seems to clearly teach. But the, the key belief for them is that there is one God with one name, and that name specifically is Jehovah. However, as noted on the basic idea, they reject the idea that Jesus is God, which we will get to, but they therefore then reject the Trinity as a whole. Really quickly on the name Jehovah, they make a big deal about it, but the fact that they refer to God with a proper name is not anything like outrageous, okay? When, when we see in our Bibles, most Bible translations anyway, the capital L-O-R-D, that's an indication being made by the Bible translators that the divine name is being used, the name that God himself revealed to Moses as his name. In the Hebrew scriptures, what would actually be there is just four Hebrew characters with no vowels, and we call that the tetragrammaton, if you want a big word, um, Transliterated, those four characters would be Y-H-W-H. Now, most Christians these days tend to render that as Yahweh. You've probably heard that. And in fact, uh, the New Legacy Standard Bible puts Yahweh in place of the capital L-O-R-D, which I'm a fan of. But there have been plenty of English-speaking Christians over the centuries or the millennia. Well, we haven't spoken English that long. However long we've been speaking English, we've been using Jehovah, And it's not a big deal. We've used that in the past, and some people use it now. I've got no problem with the name Jehovah. But if we're being honest, no one can actually know for certain anymore 
how the divine name is pronounced, because again, we just have the four letters with no vowels. So it could be Yahweh, it could be Yahweh, it could be Yehoah, things like that. Frankly, the hard J with Jehovah is the least likely, because they didn't really use a hard J uh, in Hebrew. Um, but we use the name Jesus with a hard J. His name would have been Yeshua or something along those lines. Not a, we don't make a big deal about it. Jehovah's Witnesses make a bigger deal about it. But I'm willing to say that I will happily use the name Jehovah for the rest of my days if the Jehovah's Witnesses agree that Christ himself is also Jehovah. Well, I don't know who I need to talk to to make that arrangement, but I'm willing to do it. But that's, that's where the, the name comes to play. The fact that they say Jesus is not Jehovah is what brings us to the, to the next important point. From their perspective, Jesus Christ is Jehovah's, Jehovah God's only literal creation, and he was originally created as Michael the archangel. Um, they suggest that he existed as a being created by God in pre-human form as Jehovah's uh, spokesman, so referred to as the Word or the Divine Logos, of course, Michael the Archangel, and uh, he was the first created being, so this is a misuse of, you know, firstborn of all creation, and then Jesus created everything else in their view. He created all uh, other things. So, what that would mean for us day to day is that everything we see and understand about the world would be created by Jesus, but Jesus himself is not Jehovah God in their view. Uh, the Logos, or Michael, then later came to earth through the virgin birth of Mary in his role as Jesus Christ the Messiah. So more to come there. Uh, to round out the Trinity from the Jehovah's Witness perspective, the Holy Spirit then is not a person. It is rather an impersonal force of Jehovah God that he uses to have his servants do his will. So they will refer in their words as the Holy Spirit is simply God's active force. So the Holy Spirit is not a distinct being of any kind, no part of a Godhead as we would traditionally teach in Christianity. Now I want to expand a little bit uh, more on a few of these looking at that FAQ section from their website. So I'm going to be reading a couple things here about uh, what they say about God and Jesus. So this is from the first point of their FAQ, what they believe in terms of God. We worship the one true and almighty God, the creator, whose name is Jehovah. Psalm 83.18, Revelation 4.11. He is the God of Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. Exodus 3.6, John 20.17. Now when read or heard in isolation... Definition of God is good enough. It's pretty, pretty solid. But then the next point is about Jesus. So in terms of Jesus, it says, We follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ and honor him as our Savior and as the Son of God. Also pretty good. Matthew 20, 28, Acts 5, 31. Thus, we are Christians, Acts eleven twenty six. But now they have a however. However, we have learned from the Bible that Jesus is not Almighty God and that there is no scriptural basis for the Trinity doctrine, John 14, 28. Uh, Then it has reference in an appendix on Jesus, and it says this in the section under Michael the Archangel. Michael, referred to by some religions as Saint Michael, is evidently a name given to Jesus before and after his life on earth. Now, to be fair, I've actually heard some fairly convincing exegesis and argumentation that Jesus was Michael the archangel. I believe um, John Calvin actually held to that position. 
But that argumentation had a much different starting point and a much different conclusion than the Jehovah's Witnesses in terms of seeing Michael, the archangel, as a pre-incarnate Christ. And the argumentation I saw was, it was somewhat convincing. I could buy it. It wasn't like a slam dunk compelling, you must believe this type of thing. But those arguments didn't conclude that Michael, Jesus being Michael the archangel meant that he was therefore a created being. Uh, those arguments would say that Michael the archangel was actually Jesus, a.k.a. God, all along, versus the Jehovah's Witnesses concluding that Jesus actually being Michael the archangel means that he was created like all other angels would have been created. So different conclusions. So if you ever hear someone talk about Michael the archangel being a pre-incarnate Christ, don't assume that they're Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, John Calvin was not a Jehovah's Witness. Um, we'll touch a little bit more on the Jesus uh, God stuff later. That's really the linchpin of this whole thing. They've got other weird beliefs, but the linchpin of the whole thing is their rejection of Jesus being um, God incarnate. Also, I'm, I won't get into a whole history lesson here, but the idea of Jesus not being fully God, but rather being a creation of God with maybe some semi-divine attributes, that's not new either. Charles Taze Russell didn't come up with that. That actually goes back to a viewpoint that was deemed as heretical back in the early 300s and was addressed at the famous Council of Nicaea that you've probably heard of. And that's where we got the, the Nicene Creed, which was made in part to denounce this viewpoint. Does anybody know the heresy that I'm referring to from that time frame? Arianism, right. Um, Arius was a guy going around teaching that Jesus was not fully God. He had a famous line that was, there was a time when the Son was not, which is a phrase that the Jehovah's Witnesses would fully affirm, thus making them heretics for holding a heretical position. Fun fact, since we're coming up on the Christmas season regarding Arius, this is a complete deviation from what we're talking about here, but uh, according to legend, um, who we now know as Saint Nick, an actual historical Christian, who was the inspiration for Saint Nicholas, a.k.a. Santa Claus, because of his generosity, Legend holds that he went into like a pub area and had an argument with Arius, which led to St. Nick slapping Arius across the face. So, we, so if you ever see a little drawing of Santa Claus slapping a heretic, that's where that comes from. Uh, <laughs> uh, one more thing on Jesus, which maybe belongs in the ethics or salvation section, but I'll put it here just because it's so primary and it so much skews the purpose of the incarnation that I'm going to talk about it now. This also comes from JW.org in a section called, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? And this is the, the, the third point on that, and I'm going to read it word for word. Point three, Jesus became obedient to the point of death, thus proving that a human could be faithful to God under any test or trial. Reference Philippians 2.8. Despite having a perfect mind and body, Adam disobeyed God because he selfishly desired something that did not belong to him. Genesis 2:16 and 17 and 3:6. Later, God's chief enemy Satan suggested that no human could unselfishly obey God, especially if his life were on the line. Job 2:4. Yet the perfect man, Jesus, obeyed God and remained loyal to him even undergoing a disgraceful and painful death. Hebrews 7:26. 726. This completely settled the matter. A human can remain faithful to God under whatever test or trial may be brought upon him. End quote. The clear implication there and what we get from the rest of their religion is that Jesus perfectly was perfectly faithful and obeyed God, so you can be too. 
And that is a, a severe yoke to put on anybody. But uh, we'll get to it later. But while they talk about Christ dying for them, they don't mean what we, we mean when we say those things. But let's move on to anthropology to see what Jehovah's Witnesses think of us, of mankind. In, in some ways, they're going to agree with Orthodox Christianity about the nature of mankind. They understand the Genesis account more or less uh, how we do. They do affirm that Adam was the first man created specially by God and in the image of God, at least in terms of the kinds of qualities that humans have in relation to those of Jehovah God. But based on what we said earlier, uh, we technically would have been created by Jesus, not by Jehovah, because Jesus was Jehovah God's only creation. Jesus then created everything else. They do have some weird views of creation. They're generally not six-day creationists. I mean, that's not going to throw them into to heresy. I don't put a lot of importance on that. But they do have some different interpretation of the days and the creation that don't really fall into any other categories that I would know of, like old earth creationism or framework hypothesis or gap theory. They've got their own weird thing in there, but that's not the end of the world. Uh, they do affirm that people have both a body and a soul, but they don't view the soul in the same way that typical Christianity does. We'll hit on that uh, again in a minute. They would identify that sin, you know, falling short of God's perfection, is a problem, and they believe that the current condition that we and the world are in is a result of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, and that their sin and disobedience caused death to enter the world. Um, so we, we, can, we can affirm that with them. They do recognize that death and evil entered the world uh, before, messing up its original intention, and they also believe that this world will eventually end. And, uh, and in fact, a lot of their um, theology is focused on the end times. They put a much greater emphasis on uh, the millennial kingdom, Armageddon, than most people do. Some people get into like an eschatology kick for a while. I've been there, um, but it lasted like a couple months. But this, like their whole theology is eschatology-based. They do not believe in the existence of any kind of hell, which stemmed from one of the reasons Charles Taze Russell started this view. So they don't believe in hell, and they have an interesting kind of dual level of the afterlife that we'll get to in the salvation section. But the bottom line would be in terms of the destiny of mankind, people will either end up in heaven or paradise earth or be completely annihilated. They will cease to exist. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that we as humans have souls that live or continue to exist beyond our physical death prior to our eventual resurrection. They do believe that there will be a resurrection, but they believe that the soul dies when the body dies, and then those who are saved, or really all people will eventually have their bodies recreated. Those who are not believers at that time will then be fully annihilated to where their body and soul cease to exist, and those that have been resurrected that do believe will continue to exist forever. But between the point, like if I were to die today and Armageddon, in their view, doesn't happen for another 100 years, I would not exist in any kind of way in that interim period. You might refer to it as soul sleep if you've heard an idea like that. Here's, here's how they said it from JW.org, again on the FAQ page about death. People who die pass out of existence. Psalm 146.4, Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 10. You probably picked up, by the way. We're not agreeing with most of these beliefs, but they've got two, three, four proof texts for everything that they believe. So I do give them some credit for that. But um, as you've probably heard around here, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. 
And that's what all these proof texts are. There's no context around them, uh, so they're being interpreted poorly, we would say. Continuing. Um, People who die pass out of existence. They do not suffer in a fiery hell of torment. God will bring billions back from death by means of a resurrection, Acts 24.15. However, those who refuse to learn God's ways after being raised to life will be destroyed forever with no hope of final resurrection, Revelation 20.14 and 15. So interesting views there. Uh, in terms of the purpose of life, they believe that the purpose of life is to earn the right to participate in the kingdom of God. They have a strong emphasis on the kingdom of God, and the hope is that you would eventually participate in that kingdom forever on a paradise earth. Their purpose would additionally be to get as many people as possible to participate in that kingdom, which is a big part of being in their religion, their evangelism. So can't knock them on that. That's basically their great commission is trying to get as many converts as possible, perhaps for a different reason than we would in standard Christianity. Coming to knowledge, how do the Jehovah's Witnesses know what they know, specifically what they know about God? Now, their primary source of authority, at least officially, would be the Bible, specifically their translation of the Bible that I held up before, the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. So just to talk about that translation a little bit, and I'll bring mine up here and we'll talk through a couple passages. For 98 or so percent of this, you could count it as your standard, another translation of the Bible. It reads kind of clunky, but more or less it's a translation like any other, but that 2% is really big. And what we find in here is that in scenarios of the scriptures that don't meet their predetermined theology, they really do violence to the text. They will change words, they will remove words, they will modify them to read differently. It's a lot more than doing a find replace of the word God with the word Jehovah. They of course do that, but there's a lot of other places in scripture where they are changing what the text actually means, if you were to look at the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic, to fit their theology. Now, they do this very blatantly, which we'll see, but I would take a moment to to warn us that we have to be careful that we don't do this. We're, of course, not publishing translations of Scripture, but we should be careful that we don't allow our traditions or the things that we've grown up with to import theology onto the text We want to pull our theology from the text, so we should heed that warning as well. But the Jehovah's Witnesses, quite clearly, we'll see, have taken what they've decided the scriptures should have said and import that into the text. Um, Who knows the most famous modification? If you've heard of any modifications of their translation, you've probably heard of this one. Does anybody know the most famous one? I think uh, I've heard that. Yeah, so I heard John 1 example, and you're right. It's when we're, anything that starts to refer to Jesus as being God, they're going to modify the text to make sure that's not what it says. So I'm not going to let you look it up, but who, without reading this, who knows what John 1 1 actually says in any good translation of the scriptures? And the word was God was the important part there. If you can see on the screen, an important addition in their text is in the beginning. The word was, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. So they've thrown in the the indefinite article there. No legitimate Greek scholar would would tell you that an article belongs in front of that. That's that's not how the grammar, that's not how the grammar 
or the syntax of that language works. That A does not belong there. Most Jehovah's Witnesses have been well-trained to address this problem, and they'll probably talk circles around you about Greek that neither of you actually know what's being talked about. So it's not, it's not my recommend. That sentence is not where I would recommend talking. We might get to later where, where I would recommend. But that's the most famous example of how they've modified the text. But I actually want to show you a much more, in my idea, in my eyes, a much more egregious one. Could someone really quickly turn to Colossians 1? So we can hear what Colossians 1 says for real. It'll be Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. Anybody getting there quickly? Yeah? Okay, let's hear it. 15 through 17? Yes, please. Who is the image of the invisible God, the first form of every creature? For him, we are all things are... For him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether by their whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Yes, thank you. So this is a clear text talking about Jesus. No one's denying this is talking about Jesus, saying that Jesus was the creator of all things. This is a very important text for referring to Jesus as part of the triune God, that being God himself, being directly involved in creation. I'll show you and I'll read to you, if you can't see it, how this is rendered in the New World Translation. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and upon the earth, the things visible and the things invisible, no matter, no matter whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities. All other things have been created through him and for him. Also he is before all other things, and by means of him all other things were made to exist." It's clear in this translation, this was a, I took a picture of what I'm reading here, that they have inserted the word other, not because the, the text demanded it, not because it was implied by uh, the language. You may see in your Bible sometimes, at least in my translation, they'll put words in italics if they've inserted a word to kind of complete the thought for how the English language needs to work. Usually you'll see things like and or with, words like that put in there. But here they've just inserted words to make sure their theology still works. There's no reason for that to be in the text. Now here, it's clear that they've inserted it because it's got the brackets around it. But this is a, uh, I have a 1970 and a 1984 edition of their text. Since 2006, any of the Bibles that they publish in print or that they keep online have have removed those brackets. So this is what shows on their website now. They've removed the brackets. So if you were reading this and didn't know any better, you'd think that that's what the text says. But the text does not in any way say that. And this is what I think is one of the more egregious examples of how they've, again, done violence to the text to make it fit into their preconceived theology. So much, much more could be said about how they've come up with their translation and such. What we need to know is that it's flawed and it's been um, modified with malice to, to make it fit uh, a heretical position. But that's their primary source of authority, at least uh, officially. Other um, authoritative sources would come from the Watchtower Society literature that they publish regularly that I mentioned before, Watchtower Magazine and Awake. We'll talk about how those come into play again uh, later. 
Really what this all means, though, is that the Bible is not the final authority. It's the headquarters, those 18 men in the governing body that are the ultimate um, authority of what the church is going to believe. Uh, They set the doctrine. They set the weekly teaching that we'll touch on in a minute. And they're not to be questioned. Uh, you, You may have heard this. You may have seen things on TV. But for Jehovah's Witnesses, independent thinking or investigation by an individual is strongly, strongly discouraged. Um, They're even told not to even Google the name Jehovah's Witnesses because any information that they see contrary to what they're teaching is um, people trying to deceive them, that the whole rest of the world is trying to trick them out of being involved in this kingdom work. So you're not to do any private investigation of what you think the truth to be. They will inform you what the truth is, and the consequences of going against that are pretty severe. In terms of where they get their learning then, to where they are getting fed data, if they're not allowed to go get it themselves, comes through their meetings. So they don't, have, they don't call their places churches, they don't call their teachings sermons, they have meetings in kingdom halls. In their meetings is where they are getting most of their doctrine and information. And as I said at the beginning, they meet typically up to five times Per week, and they have a number of different kinds of meetings. That they have a weekend meeting or two, a midweek meeting. They also strongly encourage a family worship meeting where teaching is happening within the home. Then they additionally have, uh, we'll talk about communion later, but a once a year um, evening meal meeting. But according to the Watchtower directly, one role of the frequency and duration of these meetings, they're not short, is to protect witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses, from becoming involved in the affairs of the world uh, in their terms. The, the weekend meeting, which uh, usually happens on a Sunday, it'll have a 30-minute public talk, they called it, um, by a congregational elder or some other kind of ministerial servant, and then a uh, one to one and a half hour question and answer time, which is going to be a study um, of a Bible-based article from the Watchtower magazine. And the questions that are asked in that Q&A, it's not like a free Q&A time. The questions are prepared by the Watchtower Society, and then the answers are also provided in that magazine. Now, the, the elder leading this talk and discussion can express the ideas in their own kind of words, but any personal ideas derived from any kind of independent study, of course, would be strongly discouraged. So the information flow is very tightly held. Uh, they on, you only learn what the Watchtower Society wants you to learn in this view. In terms of ethics, what do they consider morally good and morally bad? Um, in theory, much of the moral code of the Jehovah's Witness religion would fall in line with standard conservative Christian uh, ethics and values, which we would say we derive from Scripture. The same could more or less be said for Jehovah's Witnesses, but you might say they take an even stricter approach and, of course, use their own flawed scriptures to do so. But again, credit where credit's due, any of the restrictions or prohibitions they make, it's going to be followed by three or four Bible verses for why they do it. Um, Are those properly translated? Maybe. Um, Are they read in context? Probably not. Uh, Are they applied correctly? Probably not also. Um, But they do reference the scripture, and that's where they, they get it from. But again, most of the moral code is probably more likely not coming from the Bible, but coming from the governing body, those seeking to control um, the people. They have a a very high emphasis on remaining separate from the world, and their moral code 
really starts to reflect that. Uh, anything that anything that doesn't seem to be ex- explicitly commanded or demonstrated in Scripture, they will condemn as pagan type activities and and separate uh, from it. You've probably heard of some, but just to name a few things that they have as uh, restrictions placed upon them that are beyond standard Christian morals uh, would be things like being prohibited from any kind of direct civil service or any kind of civil involvement. Uh, That would include military service. That would include any kind of public office. It would even include a saluting of a flag or of individuals or anthem singing or saying the, the Pledge of Allegiance. And it wouldn't just be against like running for office or holding an office, but even voting. They're prohibited from voting. Um, this comes from JW.org. Regarding voting, it says, True Christians respect the right of others to vote. They do not campaign against elections, and they do cooperate with elected authorities. However, they remain resolutely neutral with regard to the political affairs of the nations. So their goal is to remain absolutely neutral in any of these kinds of things. But what that would mean is, so the Jehovah's Witness faith, Jehovah's Witness faith does say that abortion is murder, for example. So if you affirm that as a Jehovah's Witness, great, but you can't actually do anything about it. Uh, if they had, if a, a necessary number of votes was required to overturn Roe v. Wade, for example, if that were actually up for vote versus just in the Supreme Court, they wouldn't be allowed to vote in favor of that because that would not be remaining politically neutral, even when it's something as significant as um, the abortion debate. Uh, also, famously, they're prohibited from getting any blood transfusions. You may have heard about that. They also do not celebrate any holidays because, of course, holidays are considered pagan. Uh, this would include things like Christmas and Easter, some of the more Christian holidays, but that would also go down to the level of birthdays. They don't celebrate birthdays. They don't celebrate Martin Luther King Day or the 4th of July, Memorial Day, anything like that. All of those are worldly and pagan. And none of these things, as strange as they may seem, none of them are loosely held rules. The consequences of violating this moral code are quite severe. Um, One of the biggest tools or threats that they have to keep people in the faith, especially, is the threat of shunning for for violating these rules. Uh, Their organization has a system of judicial committees that maintain um, discipline within the different congregations, and it's that group, those Um, bodies that have the power to excommunicate members who breach uh, the denomination's rules. And if you get excommunicated, that means that all other members must now shun you. You're shunned by all existing members. You may have read or seen stories of people who have been shunned from the Jehovah's Witness religion, and it's really awful. Bless you. So uh, just imagine that. If if you held a different belief than to us at Newcastle or you started acting in a way and we excommunicated you, not in a way to where we believe you now need evangelism and want to restore you, but rather we completely excommunicate you and cut you off. So everybody you know here cuts you off. That would even mean that your family members essentially have to act as if you don't exist. So it's that threat, and when you hear people who have left, it's that threat of shunning that keeps them in for a long time. That's really that sword of Damocles dangling over their head to say and measure, you know, is the cost of leaving this faith that I don't believe actually worth it, or do I just stay in there? And this is where you start to see, you know, we refer to Jehovah's Witnesses as a cult in terms of it's a perversion of the Christian faith. It's a cult definitionally that way. 
But this, along with the knowledge section, you can start to see the cultic practices of controlling the information people are allowed to have and controlling their behavior and having severe consequences for breaking those things. That's classic cultic-type activities. Part of why they take this so seriously, though, apart from wanting to control people, um, but failing to live by the code of the Jehovah's Witnesses is really viewed as betrayal and disloyalty. As, As I mentioned before talking about Jesus... According to them, Jesus proved that people are capable of remaining faithful and obedient to Jehovah God. So if you are continually falling out of line with the rules, that's a willful choice that you're making, and it's going specifically against the oath you've taken at baptism. Um, Their baptism uh, is more or less agreeing to a lifetime of loyalty to specifically the Jehovah's Witness faith. So when you break from that, you're essentially a, a Judas. You're a traitor from there. So that's why they can take it so seriously to shun you because now you're dangerous, right? Salvation. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, have an interesting view of salvation. They do believe that God has an answer to the problem of our world, death and evil, that's plaguing us. Um, like our Orthodox Christians, they do expect an eventual return of Christ and a, and a final fulfillment of the kingdom of God to be established. But when Charles Taze Russell's 1914 prediction related to that millennial reign starting, that when that failed to materialize, they did modify uh, what they meant by that the first time around. And they now actually argue that Jesus did return in 1914, but it was an invisible return, and he is now in Brooklyn in the headquarters reigning as king from there. They believe that Satan and his demons were expelled from heaven in 1914 when that happened and sent down to earth. And that explains things like World Wars I and II, the suffering and such that we've seen since that time. And they would say, since 1914, we are now in a period of the last days and anticipate Armageddon beginning at any given moment. They believe in the imminent, imminent Armageddon, comets start falling from the sky type stuff. As a solution, they will refer to salvation through Jesus Christ, but it's clear that they do not believe that Jesus Christ alone saves them from the judgment of Jehovah. They do recognize that Jesus died at the crucifixion, um, though they will insist that he was crucified on a post, not on a cross, and they would suggest that Christians who celebrate or venerate the the cross are guilty of pagan worship, of course. But either way, they do affirm the crucifixion, But interestingly, they reject the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Instead, they believe that while in the tomb, Jesus' body was disintegrated, and that's why it wasn't there, not that he got up and walked out, and then Jehovah God raised Jesus from the dead as a spirit creature, not a bodily creature, a spirit creature, and then he appeared in various forms to various people along the way, which explains why when he was walking down the road with those guys, they didn't recognize him. It's because he was in a different form at that time. And then they suggest at the ascension he returned um, to his role as Michael the archangel in heaven until that invisible return in 1914. So a lot of crazy stuff there. Um, But the key is, the key thing that they're missing is that they don't see the real achievement of Christ being the securing of salvation for those that would have faith in him, you know. Christ taking the the penalty for our sins, thus us receiving pardon for that, and then also Christ giving us his righteousness, making us right before God 
thus ensuring our eternal salvation. They miss that completely. From the, from the Jehovah's Witness perspective, Christ actually had um, several purposes. None of them are what I just described. Uh, they teach that um, Jesus came to earth, number one, to teach the truth about Jehovah. Number two, to provide a model of a perfect life that we could follow. And number three, this is the atonement-ish part, to sacrifice his life to pay the ransom for Adam's sin. So for the Jehovah's Witness, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't payment for our sins or for their sins, but it was a ransom sacrifice for Adam's sin. And this is clearly a fundamental departure from Orthodox Christianity because the death of Jesus doesn't actually pay for any of their sins uh, in this life. They would suggest that they are still responsible to live a life worthy of Jehovah God, and we will not be reunited with him unless we work our way to being savable, basically. Um, let, me, let me read this to you. This is from uh, Studies in the Scriptures, which is another authoritative source for them. It's a six-volume, six basically, Bible study aid that Charles Taze Russell himself put together. This is from the first volume. The ransom for all given by the man Christ Jesus does not give or guarantee everlasting life or blessing to any man. So clearly Jesus is not enough in their view. Um, According to the Watchtower printed material, Watchtower magazine from February of 83, if you want to dig it out, they listed four requirements for salvation. First requirement is to take in the knowledge of Jehovah and Jesus Christ. So taking in the knowledge And of course, what they mean is taking in the knowledge of Jehovah and Jesus as they define them. So belief in a Jesus who is not fully God, belief in a Jesus who um, has not paid for our sins and given us his righteousness, a Jesus that didn't rise from the grave. So it's a bad start. You have to start off by uh, confessing a uh, a false Christ. Number two, the second criteria for salvation is, I'm quoting here, to obey God's laws, yes, to conform one's life to the moral requirements set out in the Bible. So this isn't listed as something, like Tyson said before one of the songs today, that we do because we've been saved. This is how Christians ought to act now that we've been redeemed. They would say that we must obey in order to stay in our state of salvation. We have to continue to obey Jehovah's laws in order to be still in a state of salvation, as they would say. So the idea of being uh, freed from the burden of the law, burden of the law in Christ, is a lost concept on them. Uh, A third requirement that says here, a third requirement is that we be associated with God's channel, his organization. God has always used an organization. For example, only those in the ark in Noah's day survived the flood, and only those associated with the Christian congregation in the first century had God's favor, Acts 4.12. Similarly, Jehovah is using only one organization today to accomplish his will. To receive everlasting life in the earthly paradise, we must identify that organization and serve God as part of it. So basically, you must be in the Jehovah's Witness religion to be saved at all. So just to be crystal clear, Jehovah's Witnesses would view every single one of us as lost and destined for annihilation. They don't see us as just another valid Christian denomination I'm hoping you're understanding that we shouldn't consider them a valid denomination either. Uh, Fourth, the fourth requirement is connected with loyalty. It says, God requires that prospective subjects of his kingdom support his government by loyally advocating his kingdom rule to others. As Jesus Christ explained, this good news of the kingdom will be preached in all the inhabited earth, Matthew 24, 14. 
So the additional criteria is that you must be faithfully promoting the Jehovah's Witness faith organization by going door to door or by distributing literature on a very regular basis. So again, more and more and more works to be saved. I think I've skipped a few things on here. Um, Beyond all of that, there are actually two classes of Jehovah's Witnesses that will be saved. There is an anointed class. Um, This anointed class is the the 144,000 that you read about in Revelation 7-4. The 144,000. For the Jehovah's Witnesses, those were thought to be just the Jehovah's Witnesses, the actual number of Jehovah's Witnesses that would be saved, which may have worked out had Armageddon actually taken place in 1914 when they didn't have that many people. Um, But since that didn't happen, and there's way more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses now, they've changed the definition to get this two-tiered version. And the 144,000 is a special class that will be ruler kings along with Jesus in heaven, ruling over paradise earth after Armageddon. So the, the top class 144,000 would be in there. So like Charles Taze Russell is in that class, of course. But beyond someone like him, no one can really have any certainty of who is in that 144,000 or if you're in that 144,000. And it would be pretty pretty presumptuous to believe that you were uh, in that class. They have some questions that you can ask yourself to try to self-examine. But even with that, you can never be certain, certain. Um, Another little tidbit along those lines The Jehovah's Witnesses only partake of communion, uh, what they call the Lord's Evening Meal, once per year. And they um, believe that only those in this anointed class ought to partake of that meal. Um, What they say is that this meal is only for those that are in the New Covenant, which is different than we understand the New Covenant. Uh, This is quoting from JW.org again. Those who are in the New Covenant, Covenant partake of the memorial emblems, referring to the Supper. It includes not all Christians, but only those who have been called in a special way by God. These ones will rule in heaven with Christ, and the Bible says that just 144,000 people receive that privilege. In contrast to the little flock of those called to rule with Christ, the vast majority of us hope to be part of a great crowd who will gain everlasting life on earth. While those of us With an earthly hope, do not partake of the memorial emblems. We do join in expressing thanks for the sacrifice that Jesus made in our behalf. So at these annual communion meals, very, very few individuals that would be alive today would actually be taking the supper. Um, People are going to have their eyes on you, thinking that you believe yourself to be in this 144,000 if you take it. So that's the anointed class. But then there's also this other group called the great crowd that was referred to there. This covers all other Jehovah's Witnesses who uh, either died before or survived uh, Armageddon, so they died faithfully before or they survived Armageddon somehow, who are not part of the anointed, they're part of this great crowd. They will have resurrected bodies and they will live on paradise earth uh, forever. So still pretty good, I suppose, but they won't be in that anointed class ruling with Christ uh, from heaven. And this is realistically, for any Jehovah's Witnesses alive today, this is what they are uh, hoping for. So again, like with Mormonism, I've heard the question, and I've honestly wondered it, and dare I say hoped it myself, that maybe Jehovah's Witnesses are just a quirky branch of Christianity, something that is close enough to the truth, close enough to the kingdom, they would be able to spend eternity with them. 
part of that is my desire for my aunt to be saved and my difficulty in reaching her. But unfortunately, if they're believing what the Watchtower is teaching, um, they, these people are in rebellion to, the, to God and to what the Scripture is teaching. The people leading this organization are wolves, um, sending people to damnation. Jehovah's Witnesses, just like the Mormons, just like the Muslims, they need the gospel. And for all three of those groups, for people that have, especially them, so much, so much light, so much that hasn't been corrupted in here, it's, it's unfortunate how in the dark they actually are. They are people that need the good news. Any questions? I went longer than I anticipated. Yeah, Steve? I'm just curious what they do with the book of Hebrews, especially the first three, you know, it says that that Jesus is an exact representation of God's nature. Did you happen to look at that? Or, yeah, or? well, they, they would suggest it's because Jehovah created him, created Jesus as his chief and best and only creation. He was made specifically to to look that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know the answer um, to why they would say Jesus needed to die for Adam? Like, why did he get that special status? Um. If I went to that JW.org page, I would, because what I read was point three. I think they had four points on there to talk uh, on there. It's irregular, uh, but I don't remember precisely what, what it is. The question was what happened to people before if, they, if a requirement to be a member of the church is for salvation, what happened to people before the Jehovah's Witness Church was organized? Yeah, good question. Um, they would suggest that in that period, there were faithful Jehovah's Witnesses uh, along the line prior to having the organization exist, there were people that believed the things that Jehovah truly meant to teach them, but they were a very small remnant. So the number of pre-1870 or whatever people that were saved is pretty small, but they would suggest that they did exist before that. Okay, Um, I had a, a thing to maybe walk through, and I also wanted to show a video if you, I'm going to show it anyway. If you need to, to walk out to get to service, you can. But I wanted to show, and this was in the notes that I sent out. If you didn't get them, I can send it to you. But I wanted to show you an actual interaction with Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, this, again, was from the same church of the videos that I showed from Mormonism. I'm going to increase the speed to like 1.2 so that we can try to get through it. So try to stick with it. But this is them approaching some Jehovah's Witnesses in Hawaii. Uh, there's a big population in Hawaii. The context is that that the people here that they're talking to initially did not want to engage with the Christians. They knew who they were, so they didn't really want to engage. But the way that he handles the conversation with them and how graciously he speaks, I wanted to share just as a model for us, not to necessarily say, here's the three things that we can definitely convert a Jehovah's Witness with. I know that doesn't always work, right? The Spirit does that. But I wanted us to learn from the interaction anyway. So I'll play it. If you need to walk out, um, don't feel embarrassed to do so. We're not going to all watch you or anything. Walk out. Depending on the Wi-Fi, we may not watch it at all. Let's see. Hi, Jehovah's Witnesses. 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 Hi,
like I said, my, my motivation, and I just want to tell you, with, with love, my motivation to care for you and to speak to you is not anything to do with malice or hatred. It's it's out of a genuine concern for you, for you, for you all. For you, I, I love Jehovah's Witnesses. You guys have more dedication and zeal than many than many Christians. No, I, I know. I, I love you. I care for your soul. Uh, I, I, I do believe, and this is the truth. I'm going to give you a compliment that Jehovah's Witnesses, you have some of the greatest zeal and discipline more than many professing Christians. I think that your commitment to what you believe to be true and your your willingness to sit here in the hot sun all day and to be out every week uh, to do to do your mission, I think is something that's that's humanly speaking commendable. And I and I mean that with true sincerity. So my my coming to you would be in the same light of say, and I know you accept the scriptures, Acts chapter nine, the apostle Paul goes to the synagogues and he reasons with the Jews in the synagogues and it didn't go well. I mean this some of them wanted to kill him, right? So sometimes when we have conversations like this, there is conflict, but I don't desire to have any hostile conflict with you. I, I want to share with you, and, and I want to hear from you as well. So, I mean, that's, I think, genuine love. I know, I know that what motivates you to come out here, it has to be love, right? You guys have to love the people that are coming by here, otherwise you wouldn't really be doing this. So, um, I guess, from, from my perspective, and, and maybe you don't have to even exchange with me, but just so you understand, the, the two things that I'm most concerned with is, one, we use the same language. We, we use Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father, we say Jehovah, uh, salvation, grace, cross, all those, but we mean completely different things. Stuff. My concern is with what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, he was worried about the early Christians in Corinth, that they would believe in another Christ and another gospel. And that was not long after the resurrection. There were people who were promoting a false Christ and a false gospel, and he was worried about them. So you can be zealous and disciplined and loving and gracious and all that, but you can be following a Christ that's not the true Christ and believing a gospel that's not the true gospel. That's so true. Yes. We all have our own, own beliefs and our own thoughts and yep. we follow that because of our own free will. Could Jehovah God, it would help us summarize that if you're Yeah, I, I grant what you just said. I want to acknowledge what you said. I can be wrong. There's no question about that. But the question we have to ask, I think, that's for all of us to settle on is, how do we know we're wrong? Is it based on a feeling? Is it based on an organization telling us that we're right? Or is it based upon the word of the living God? Is that the standard? Because my concern, and because I've, I've wanted to listen graciously to my Jehovah's Witness friends and say, well, let me listen to what they're saying and, and, and make sure that I'm being fair with them. That I don't just say, hey, you listen to me. I'm not willing to, to listen to what you're, you're saying. So when I've had Jehovah's Witness friends come over, had dinner at my house, and, 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 and spent time together, what I've tried to do is listen to what they say about Christ. And what I've understood, and tell me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to misrepresent you, what I've understood is that Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel, the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God. Okay, so you do believe that. Yeah. So, my, my question then, in terms of like filtering through what Paul says about believing a false Christ, is that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the eternal God, that he's always existed as God. I've never read that. So, can I just, you don't have to answer it now. But yeah, I'll just, just point you to some passages. Go read, you can read it later, just examine it. And I would read it in a translation that's a regular English translation. Um, you can even go to the Hebrew and Greek if you have the proper tools, if you want to. But I would read Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, long before Jesus comes. Um, 600 years or so before Jesus arrives in his ministry. It says that, because um, we all believe there's only one God, right? You, you believe that, I believe that. There's only one God. So we're unified there together. Um, 
Um, but it says that um, unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And the word in Hebrew is Mighty God, El Gibor, the Father of Eternity. That's what it says. So El Gibor, the Mighty God, the Father of Eternity. And what's interesting is that's Isaiah 9. I'm sure you're familiar with that verse, right? The next chapter, the next chapter over, Yahweh, Jehovah, is called El Gibor. So in Isaiah 9, it says that the one who's coming, the Messiah, is El Gibor, the Mighty God. He is Jehovah. He is the Mighty God, the Eternal One. So long before Jesus comes to his earthly ministry, it says that he's the Eternal God, the one who's always existed, the Father of Eternity. So that would be one passage before we even get into the New Testament that says that Jesus is Eternal God, uncreated. There's one example. Um, another one is Micah 5, verse 2. It says the one coming to Bethlehem is from eternity. From eternity. So it says that Jeho Jesus is Yahweh. He's Jehovah. And he's from all eternity. And, and I know that you believe that, Je that Jehovah is the almighty God, right? Yeah. yeah. If you read Revelation, chapter 1, and then read the end of Revelation, it calls Jesus the almighty God. Thank you. I appreciate you guys doing that, and I want you to know that I love you. I do. I know it's hard for you to accept that, because I'm obviously in disagreement with you, and I want to reach you. But I want you to know it's motivated by love, and I just want to share one thing with you, and I hope you just receive it with the spirit I'm giving it. The good news of the kingdom, your emphasis on the kingdom is so important, because that is an emphasis from the Old and New Testament. That's true. The question is, is who's the king? And what's the good news? And the good news, according to Scripture, is that men and women can be reconciled to God by God's grace through faith in Jesus, the eternal God who took on flesh and rose again from the dead. And it's through faith in Him and His work alone. You get His righteousness as a gift, according to Paul in Romans 5. You can't earn your own righteousness or climb your way to Jehovah, right? Which, I'm glad you're saying that, but you know that classic Watchtower theology doesn't teach that it's solely a gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus alone. It's also based upon my righteousness and my good deeds, right? Yeah, then Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, if you go that route, attempting to establish your own righteousness and faith in Jesus, then he says Christ has been become of no effect to you. You've fallen from grace. It's either the grace of God through faith in Jesus alone for his righteousness, or you and I stand before God in our own unrighteousness and our own sin. You can't have... Well, good, good. Yeah. So basically the same Except, except, except one, can I have one caveat and maybe we can think about together? And this is important. Is the Watchtower does teach, though, that you are accepted by God based upon, in some sense, your obedience. I know, but, but based upon your obedience, that will make that determination. So I just want to point you to one passage. I know I'm giving you a few to think about. Just read Galatians. The book of Galatians, Paul addresses, for all of us, we all need to acknowledge this and think through it. Not just, I'm not saying you, to me, me as well. Paul was speaking in the first century to the Judaizers that were teaching that if it's grace, it's faith in Jesus, he did all his work, but we need to have obedience to this, to this one law in order to be justified before God. It's faith plus this one act of righteousness, obedience. He says anybody preaching that message should be eternally condemned by God. He says it's, we are justified through faith in Christ apart from works of law. Nobody will justify. Well, but the Watchtower does teach that it is based in some sense off your own works. You may say that, but it's not. It's well, that's what your actions and how you live your life. Right. Your, your obedience. The Bible itself says faith without works is dead. 
Amen. James said that, not telling us how to get saved. Exactly. He was telling he was telling how do we know the difference between true living faith and false dead faith? Right. And based upon what it does. Right. But it's only that faith that brings you to a place where God declares you righteous. Only faith alone. Right. So all I'm gonna do is just I, I remember those passages and just read them later so you know where my heart is, because I'm sure we'll see each other small island. Oh, yeah. Isaiah nine. <laughs> Isaiah nine, El Gabor, he's the mighty God. Revelation one and Revelation twenty two. That's um, that Jesus is the Almighty God. And then the book of Galatians. Just read through the book of Galatians. No influence from me or anybody else. Just read Galatians. And I want to encourage you with respect. Read Galatians in a regular English translation. Because I can't... King James. King James is great. New King James, ESV. And the only reason I say that is that... In a, in just So you can see that I'm, I'm not... I, I don't want to be dishonest. If I'm dishonest with you, you have the right to confront me. Just take a regular translation. Yeah. Bless you, ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, by the way, what's your name? Betsy. Betsy and Karen. All right. God bless you, ladies. And I will and I will read your material. I'm not just going to take it. Okay. All right. God bless you guys. Okay. Thank, thanks for sticking around. Again, I chopped up that video so the transitions weren't to like hide them having these amazing retorts or something. I chopped it up to try to not go as long as I just did. Um, but the things to take away from that, if you're if you're ever engaged with a Jehovah's Witness, using the Bible obviously is where you need to be, but. I would call the goal not to get an on-the-spot repentance because the odds of that are very slim. But if you can get them to question the watchtower and what they've been telling them in some way, I think that's a very valuable way to go. Uh, you mentioned a few times using a regular English translation, and the things that I cut out because it was long was pointing out how, like we looked at today, where the text has been changed. And one of the resources they have, they call it the Kingdom Inter Interlinear, that has their translation side by side with the Greek, and then like the literal reading of the Greek. Their interlinear, showing the Greek, shows that the word other, for example, isn't in there. So if you can get them to start to question a little bit, they're of course taking a big risk of then investigating things on their own. But if you can get them to question and read on their own, the scripture is clear on these things, and of course share the gospel with them. So I wanted to share that just because... We don't always know how to act in this. What is one of these interactions going to look like? The grace that that pastor showed with them I thought was exemplary. Uh, I, would, I, I wish that I could engage in someone uh, in that way. There's a few key verses that you might want to know, things like Galatians and the Gospel of, by grace through faith alone, things like the El Gabor. I don't know how much Hebrew you know. That's about what I know uh, right there, the El Gabor thing. But things like that to point out where their text is in conflict with what the original text said I think is important. Um, maybe I'll send the link out to you because there's one more video that we don't have time for. Jehovah's Witness also have a cartoon, like the cartoon we watched for the Mormonism one, made by the same people. Um, but... We won't watch that today. We'll save that for, uh, I'll send that out in an email if you want to wanna watch it. But I'll, I'll quick um, pray and we'll, we'll close for today. And again, apologies for, for going over. Uh, Lord God, you are um, the eternal creator of all things. And Father, we, we know that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, who is not just a son, not a created son, but he too is of eternity and created all things and through him all things were made, nothing that was made did not come through him. We confess, Father, that the Trinity is a complicated thing for us to describe, but the teaching of Scripture is clear that you, Father, are God, Jesus the Son is also God, and the Holy Spirit too is God. Pray that we would believe that firmly, we would hold that tight in our hearts, knowing that, is a, that it is true and that what the Scripture teaches, and that we would confront error with that. We pray for um, boldness and clarity of thought if we confront someone that is trapped in the Jehovah's Witness faith that we can share the true good news of your gospel with them without fear and trust you to to um, 
trust you with the results. We don't know what you have in store for the Jehovah's Witnesses as an organization, if you plan to tolerate it for another hundred years, or if you would seek to end it now and and release those people from that trap and, and bring them to yourself. We can pray for that, but we can trust you uh, in all things. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We'll see you uh, next week.